Hello, and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Mahir Shah, Head of Data Architecture and Engineering at Fidelity Investments. Mahir has spent nearly 30 years revolutionizing Fidelity Investments' view on data. From director to vice president to CTO, Mahir has seen it all. And luckily, he shares what he learned along the way with us today. In this episode, he shares insights into executing a successful data strategy across all your business units, Fidelity Investments movement to the cloud, data liquidity, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between Mahir Shah and your host, Steve Hamm. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Now, what is your role in the company? Tell us what you do and, and what your main goals are in, in your roles. So I've been I've been in this company for 27 years. I have done multiple different roles in almost every single business unit. What I'm focused on today is I'm the head of data architecture and engineering. And we created this role about three years ago, where we said that there are certain functions that are so important for the future that it needs an enterprise focus and enterprise strategy, not a business unit vertical strategy. Mm -hmm. So we created the obvious one was was cybersecurity that was always there, which is a horizontal across fidelity. We created a role for head of cloud and and then the the one that I'm in, which is head of data. So in my job, it's my job to plan our entire data strategy across all our business units and, and actually engineer some of the core components. So what is your entire what is your data strategy across all the, the business units? <laughs> so I'll try to be as brief as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we categorize our uh, data infrastructure in three different areas. The first is managing our master data. Our strategy there is that for core entities that drive our business, like customer, client, product, employees, we want a single universal ID. For that, that goes across all our systems. If you have that, that has a phenomenal unifying effect on all aspects of our business. So that's the first part. The second part is our transactional and operational systems. The systems are the databases that drive our day-to-day business. And the strategy there is really modern technology stack, move to the cloud, but there is no end and rationalization, which is very typical of most of the companies of our size. But the, the key thing is that for each of our different products, you need a separate infrastructure to drive the day-to-day operations. We're not trying to merge everything. Right. One, the big one that we're working on, which actually is very pertinent to this discussion, is our focus on data that drives all our insights and analytics. We have about 135 different data warehouses, which are on appliances. We have data marts. We have other databases, spreadsheets, et cetera. We are going to eliminate all of them and create a single data warehouse that cuts across all our business units. And it's a single source of data for analytics purposes and our data science purposes across Fidelity. So it's pretty ambitious and pretty yeah. large. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you launch that, that new strategy? We launched this two years ago. And I think, as I mentioned, our business success depends on the synergy between the, our businesses. And the question was, if that's that defines a success, why is that data so siloed, right? And right. that prompted this whole strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Now, a lot of the the listeners to the podcast, in addition to wanting like technology strategy, technology advice, they also want leadership and management 
advice. A lot of people are on the ladder to ever higher positions in their companies. So if you could describe a little bit, tell us about your career as a business executive and IT leader. What have been the most important management and leadership lessons that you've learned, whether at Fidelity or, or before that? And how are you applying them at Fidelity? Yeah, Steve, I mean, that's a pretty broad question. And yeah. so let me go through a, two or three different aspects of it. Oh, good. The, first, the first thing is, I think talent matters, right? Everything is about talent and people. Acquiring talent is important, but matching the talent to the right roles is absolutely critical. One of the tenets I believe is that everyone is talented at something. Right. And if you somebody's not doing well in the particular role, they're probably not in the right role. So the, the, one of the key aspects of a leader is to really find the strengths and the weaknesses of your talent and then make sure the jobs that you assign them to amplify the or play to the strengths and hide their weaknesses. Spending time on acquiring talent and making sure they have the right content is really, really critical for success. The second thing I would say is, and, and this is throughout my career, the teamwork, is that teamwork is a strategic differentiator, right? If you work as a team and not as an individual, you will be more successful than than anyone else. So whether you're working on a team of 10-member squad or you're working across two very large independent organizations on a common goal, the success really depends and the outcome really depends. The quality of the outcome depends on how well you work as a team. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I was a CTO of asset management before this current role. And I, I one of my teams was an architecture team. And I had brilliant architects on, on the team. But until I came, they were all working independently. So the only thing I did was the same people, got them to work together as a team. On every problem, I encouraged them to seek out the best expert on the team and, and get their inputs. What happened then was just literally magic, right? Our, our, we made better decisions. We made better designs. We reduced our risk of making a mistake or a bad decision. So it was a really live example of exact same team before it, they were working as individuals, after they were working as a team, and just the, the, the outcomes were totally different. Right. So those are the two on the people side. The other one, big one, especially on this particular project that we're working on, I think one of the other big differentiator is that in large organizations like us, organizational boundaries and inability to work effectively across org structure is one of the biggest impediments. So if you can crack the code of how you work across the organization and you will be able to create bigger and better strategies and actually be able to execute on things that people would say is impossible to execute. Yeah, that's probably enough insights. That's, uh, that's uh, really rich. Thank you so much. Hey, I see that with the enterprise strategy, you've got cybersecurity, you've got somebody in charge of cloud, then you have you in charge of data. But obviously, data and cloud overlap tremendously. Yeah. So give us a little bit of history here. When and why did Fidelity begin moving its applications and data to the cloud? So I would say that we probably started this journey seven years ago, eight years ago, even longer, I, I would presume. We had pilots going on and, and uh, multiple different strategies with different cloud vendors. But what has happened is in the last three years, it has really accelerated. Mm -hmm. And because there is a focus on migration to the cloud and also there's a focus leadership team in place driving this across all of Fidelity. So 
In the three years, I think we are roughly about 40% of our applications are in the cloud. Our, our goal is to finish the job in the next couple of years and, and move entirely to a cloud-based infrastructure. Yeah. Yes. And the data will move to the cloud too, to this one huge data store. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, it has to, right? It has to. I think we have learned the hard way that on executing your cloud strategy, people try to move capabilities or functions to the cloud, okay, and not think about the data. What happens is when you have shared data environments, if one function moves to the cloud, the other one doesn't, then where do you put the data? You're cut off, yeah. So so the best way, the best strategy to move the cloud at enterprise scale is to move your data to the cloud first, right? Once you're moving the data to the cloud, once you you have two copies, one on-prem, one on the cloud, both are kept in sync, and then you start moving one by one the applications. And, And if you do that, in the reverse order as what in opposite to what people typically do, you, you'll be successful. Yeah. Yeah. So did you learn this the hard way at Fidelity or did you map out this strategy and, and have pretty smooth sailing? Well, I think it was pretty intuitive to us data folks that this was the way to go, but there were groups at Fidelity when we were piloting very in very early days where they were trying to move functions first. Right. And it was a function function-centric strategy versus a data-first strategy. And, and and they didn't make substantial progress. It was too slow. And then obviously realized the fact that we need to sequence this the right way and move the data first. Yeah. yeah. Now, a data lake seems to be a central piece of your enterprise data strategy. Now, on the podcast, we haven't talked much about data lakes yet. And it would be really great, I think, if you could explain it. Give us a little quick primer on data lakes, what role it plays and why it's so important to your strategy? So, so Steve, you're going to be a little, and the audience is going to be a little disappointed because I'm not going to actually go into a definition of data lake. And, and there's a reason why. I think, I think data lake, data warehouse, lake house, I think we're inventing terms to describe things and, and, and the, the term means different things to different people. So what we have done is, step back and not use any of these terms because they are confusing and go back to the first principles. Okay? Right. So at the end of the day, if you want to instantiate a, a data platform for all our reports, insights, KPIs, metrics, AI, ML modeling, et cetera, what do you need to do? Okay, You need to create a source to consumption data pipeline, right. Right? which means you identify all your sources and then you figure out whether how to get extract data from your sources, bring it in a raw format, whether it's through bulk event or change data capture, you you want to bring it in the raw format, but that's not usable by everyone, maybe usable by some data scientists. So the next step is take the raw format, convert that into normalized space tables, and then finally convert that into curated views for end, end users who are using BI tools or any kind of tools they want to come up with. So when we lay out the architecture, you will see that it completely makes sense and we can overlay all the different terms which are thrown around by the industry. Yeah. So so it is a kind of a silly debate whether a warehouse is better or a lake house is better. And I think a lot of this is essentially inventing new terms for just describing fundamental concepts that have already existed. Right. Right. So, so yes, we have a data lake, we have a data warehouse, and uh, we have a lake house. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
I guess they overlap with each other. Hey, so my, my sense is the data warehouse, that's primarily for structured data. Data lake, that's primarily semi-structured and unstructured, correct? Do I at least have that correct? Well, that's that's how you have defined your data lake. Oh, okay, many, I, see. Ma- I see. Many people define their data lake as where they bring in the raw data and dump it and just store it for historical purposes because that's the primary source. But yes, I think your definition also works in many cases where structured data goes into a warehouse, our emails and PDF files, voice transcripts, images, video, et cetera, goes into a data lake, right? Yeah, gotcha. When we talked before recently, you talked about this concept of data liquidity. Now, this is a term that was coined in a recent article in the Sloan Management Review, and it sounds really intriguing. Tell us about that. Sure. I, I think people who have worked with data have always used the cliched term that data is an enterprise asset. Yeah. Right. It's an asset just like plant and machinery, like real estate, cash, etc. So the question was, if data is an asset, how liquid is it? Which means... How quickly can you monetize that asset or use that asset in compose it, decompose it, combine it with other things? How quickly can you actually use that asset in a different form? So you take real estate, for example. Yes, you have a huge asset in your house, but if you tomorrow, if you want to use that asset to buy a car, you can't really do that very quickly because it's not a liquid asset. So the same concept the MIT researchers applied to data and said, look, data is an asset. Yes, we all agree. But depending on how you architect your data strategy, your data may not be that liquid or may not be usable very quickly. And that's, that's what it meant. So the whole goal is to make sure the data assets that you have, you have a good architecture, good governance behind that asset so you can use it and repurpose it for any use case that may come in very quickly and monetize it. So that's the concept of liquidity. And I think we spend a lot of time with the researchers and in with our strategy. And they actually featured us in their, their seminal paper, which mm-hmm. got published in SMR. Oh, okay. Very cool. Very cool. Now I want to focus a little bit on Snowflake just for a couple of minutes here. So when and why did Fidelity first connect with Snowflake? And, and how did you initially use the technology? Yeah. And if you could give us an example or two of just of some of the more important applications you're you're, you're using it for right now. Sure. So all the chief architects at Fidelity, we keep in touch with all the startup companies in in different startup ecosystems. So we take trips to Silicon Valley, we go to Seattle, DC, I've even even been to Berlin and Stockholm Mm -hmm. with a very focused agenda of meeting with emerging startups. Snowflake was introduced to us on one of these trips many, many years ago when it was a very small company that just started up. They had a vision. We liked the pitch. And so we kept an eye on Snowflake. It wasn't right for us at that time. But as as Snowflake developed its product roadmap, and then plus as we were trying to process more and more data, we at one point realized that a particular use case, Snowflake would be a right platform because we needed massive amounts of compute power. I can't get into the details of the use case, but essentially it was in our calculating risks for all our our bond portfolios, we do a trillion calculations a night. And and it it was a growing platform. So so we first started using Snowflake over there. And then afterwards, which which is very focused on one particular application. And then after that, 
as we were embarking on our overall analytics data platform strategy two years ago, we looked at Hadoop was something that was already prevalent in the company. So we went down the path of, can we use Hadoop? And we decided, no, we definitely cannot use Hadoop. It doesn't have all the database management features out of the box, and we would have to build all of them. Right. So we needed a really a database management system. Okay, And Snowflake was already in-house. We did a POC with Snowflake and, and went with it. Yeah. Yeah. So how many years have you been with Snowflake? So for, for the specific use case, probably upwards of four or five years. I think okay. this this strategy for two years, right? Where, where it just generally we're using it for, for this massive use cases that we have. Yeah, yeah. Can you get into any more detail with any of the, the uses you're putting it to? Something that, pro, here's the problem, here's the solution, yeah. here's, here's what we're benefiting from? Yeah. Sure. So I think our goal, I mean, in coming back to this analytics data platform, I mentioned that we had about 130 plus data warehouses, data marts, et cetera. So one of, one of the problems we have is that in the old model where we have multiple data warehouses, the most common data sets need to be copied over and over again from the core systems to these target places, target databases where they are consumed. We did not want that. We wanted a single copy of data to be instantiated and multiple use cases to be to be working on that single set of data, right? So we didn't want any duplicates. There's always a single copy of data in a warehouse and everybody uses it for different use cases. So the Snowflake's data sharing, it really makes that possible and makes it very easy. So for example, you bring in our brokerage transactions into Snowflake and the risk can use it for calculating risk. Finance can use it for calculating our total assets. And then the marketing people can use the same data set for calculating customer value or customer behavior. Even though there are different constituencies which need the data to be seen in completely different ways, we can operate off the same base copy, which makes our overall ecosystem really simple. We can eliminate a whole bunch of feeds, ETL jobs, FTP files, etc. And that was definitely one problem that we were able to solve with this, with this technology. That's a great example. Yeah. Now, you mentioned briefly sharing data. Yeah. The data cloud really enables all sorts of new things that were hard to do before. Acquiring data from third parties, sharing data either internally or externally. Also, monetizing your own data and, and, and selling it out in the marketplace. Talk to us about that. I guess you call this a marketplace strategy. W what are you doing with that? Yeah, so I think the first, the first thing... The, our first goal is to integrate and create a marketplace between our business units. So it's an internal marketplace, right? And that's what we are doing right now, which is essentially saying there's a single copy of data and multiple business units can, can use it. So with the data sharing with the marketplace, we are enabling an internal marketplace and enabling data producers to work with data consumers between our different business units and, and divisions. So that's the first, first step. The second step where we've just started is, as you mentioned, acquiring data from outside. We started actually with COVID data, which was published by Johns Hopkins. And, and what people used to do is actually go to the site 7, 7 p.m. every night, download a CSV file, and, and then upload that into their data warehouses. What we asked Snowflake to do was create a schema using the same COVID data 
and make it available as a share. Mm-hmm. So everyone in the industry could use it. So Snowflake went ahead and worked with the third party, got that done. All we did was got permission to use it. So that particular schema for COVID data just pops up in our data warehouse without us doing anything. That's star schema? It was a star schema. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of people using that. So so that was the first one. And then since then, we worked with our vendors, Faxat, Refinitiv, Morningstar. We said, hey, we are getting hundreds and thousands of FTP files every day. And it will be great for you and great for us if we can get that data in form of share, data share. And so we don't have to manage the infrastructure. We don't have to manage the latency. So a lot of vendors are now providing data in, in, in a, in directly uploaded into Snowflake and, and, and available to us as a share. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Now, you mentioned security and things like that and privacy. I know that you've had a lot of experience with data governance and related topics. How are you protecting end customers' data? Yeah, so I think our company has been extremely conservative when it comes to using and actually even whether it's protecting or even using internally our end customers' data. So there are significant number of governance steps that are involved in making sure that before anybody can get access to or can building a particular data science model, they actually have to go through a number of steps and get permission to do that. Some of the steps are very mechanical in the sense that does this person have access to PII data or not? So those policies, we are are digitizing those policies and building it into the access layer of of our platform. Right. So you don't have to go through the manual steps. We know who you are and you're, you're about to access something and, and the query that you fire will actually will be modified based on the policies that you're in, in your entitlement. So, right. so a lot of stuff we are building to our data access layer where the, the most common policies around data access is, is already built in. The second thing we have done is we have hidden all the PIA data. Right, so by default, it's not even available on our data warehouse. You have to go through a separate step to access PIA data. So if you're a data scientist, you don't need to know my name. You don't need to know my social security number. That data is actually useless. Right. So why even expose that data? So just eliminate it completely, hide it, and if you do need it for any specific reason, then you have to state the reason. Go through the steps with our risk and compliance and and, and legal team, and then we'll enable the access. There are some built-in controls because it's a shared environment, but there is only one copy. The good thing in this architecture is that the owner of the data always have, has control of the data. So even if it's not PI data or customer data, any data sets, there's always an owner. And any consumer who wants to use that data first has to take permission from the owner. It's a quick ele- electronic consent, but there's still a step involved. Right. where the owner of the data has to give permission. So we are building a whole bunch of controls in, into the environment. And then there are standard data governance functions that or data ops functions where in parallel to building this particular platform, each business unit, we have stood up data governance teams on the business side, which take care of defining the data, cataloging all the data, defining policies, the whole decision-making process, data quality issues, so we, we have very specific functions in these business units that, that take care of some of the governance functions. Okay, very good, very good. I'm feeling pretty secure right now. Uh, yeah. You said. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the future of technology. 
Looking ahead over the coming year or so, what are the biggest trends that you see in managing and analyzing data? So there are a couple of, couple of things I'll point out. One, when you talk about enterprise data architecture, in, in the past, we are, our thinking was limited to a boundaries of your particular company. So if my job was enterprise data architecture, I would think about what's the data architecture for Fidelity? And I would stop at the boundaries of, of Fidelity. I think enterprise data architecture now means you need to cover your entire ecosystem, not just Fidelity, your vendors, your partners, your institutional clients, and, and all the other third parties that you deal with. And you have to build your architecture in context of all the external interfaces that you have and all the relationships that you have, not just within the four walls of the company. I think that's the big change that cloud has brought around. And things like marketplaces and data sharing, those are all things can, that can be leveraged, leveraged when we, we talk about the entire ecosystem and not just about a single company. Yeah. So that's the one big change. I think the, the second big one, I think, is there's going to be many, many, many different vertical data marketplaces, private or public, with ready-to-use schemas. Uh, right. So we talked about the COVID data. The U.S. government has a treasure trove of data. It's all accessible. It's not secret. As a public, as a taxpayer, you can actually access that data. It's available to public, but it's not leveraged, right? Because right. it's very difficult to consume. There's a huge opportunity for taking these data sets and making them available to the public in an easy, simpler way. If you look at healthcare, you have now a healthcare industry standard data model, right. which is called FHIR, F-H-I-R, so that data consumption and sharing becomes easier across healthcare entities, right? provider, payer, et cetera. They all now are able to share data through these standard industry standard data models. There's no reason why we cannot extend that into multiple different vertical industries to right. enable marketplaces. The other thing I think is all these years, data engineering was almost like a subset of software engineering. Right. It's almost emerging as a separate discipline right. and a separate specialty. So it has a lot of impact on how you acquire talent, your college curriculums. There's going to be more and more specialization around data engineering versus software engineering. Because at the end of the day, software is software, but data is not software. Data is data. You use software to manage it, but data management is a very different specialization. Interesting. So it's understanding the nature of the different kinds of data and also a lot of math rather than a lot of coding. There is a lot of math and a lot of coding. And there are general principles of managing data. Data sets are governed by Actually, algebra and some math, even, yeah. even how you organize data is managed by math. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so there's definitely a need for specialization in, as we go into the future. I see a lot of it happening right now. There's a lot of articles being published around data engineers and data engineering specialty. And I see you know, a lot of ads for data engineers. Right, right. So here's some of them. I hope that works for you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I see the future. Fascinating modern age we live in. Is this what the future holds? I'm going to ask you to put on your visionary cap now and look further in the future, five years or more. Some of your answers to the first question, actually, I think do go out several years, but look out five years or more. How do you think data will help transform business and society? I'm not a futurist, but let me take a guess here. I I think there's this 
first big area. Think about all the different things that we do with generate data and, and we have problems. So healthcare is definitely one of them. If you look at healthcare, I, I think it's going to get completely transformed. Uh, both the patient care and in the actual practice of medicine will get transformed by data. I know that multiple companies have tried it before and we need to continue to try it because it's it's a healthcare can be truly transformed with data and it's going to happen. So that's one area. I think I think the other one is, you know, it's pretty obvious. A lot of mundane jobs will be automated through through automation using AI ML models. And if you're seeing that trend happening very, 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 very rapidly in, in, in middle offices and back offices, where instead of making binary decisions, if then else kind of decisions, software is able to make decisions based on probability and statistics. Which venue do you put a trade in, right? So I have a trade coming in. Should I send it to London? Should I send it to New York? What is the venue? Which is the trading partner I want to choose for this particular trade? All these things are getting automated through statistical methods than actually simple rule-based methods. And then the other thing I just mentioned, I think there is a, there is a huge treasure trove of data in all government organizations, whether it's US government, whether it's India or take anywhere in the world. So in order to understand our environment better, poverty and societal issues, we need better and better models to predict the outcomes of government and social programs. We need to be able to spend our money, public money more wisely. And I think as we get a handle on all the data that is available out there and better methods to capture data, I think we'll be able to use our public money much more effectively on governmental programs, social programs. You're talking about massively complicated simulations with with so many different factors in them. To some extent, Steve, I think I'm going back a couple of years, but if if there is a grant given by United Nations, a massive grant in billions of dollars for a particular country, they also have inspectors who are measuring the outcomes and they're all manual and they're all models. I would say that those are ripe for a very data-centric approach and which will give us much better results and, and help us deploy that those assets much more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real, up close and personal. We're just about done here and we like to finish on a more personal note, kind of lighter. And I understand that you were one of the early online gamers and you're still at it, even though you're, you're kind of middle-aged, I guess. I wouldn't be too... I'm, I'm that's, 50 that's plus. Not an ins- that's not an insult. Uh, <laughs> now, and you're looking forward to being immersed in the metaverse. Tell us about that. Why do you love gaming so much and what do you see in the metaverse? I was first interested in gaming because of the technology. I was a technology, I was a software engineer. And when the first multiplayer games came out which you could play against other players on the on, on your office land for example i was fascinated by the technology itself how do they sync all the frames so quickly how do they get the clicks back to back and forth so quickly so that's what started it and and i think the gaming industry still fascinates me because if you look at any domain of software engineering where it's high speed transaction processing whether it's modeling or simulation they are way ahead and, and they actually are on the cutting edge. So I've continued to play games. It's a big stress reliever for me. So if I have a stressful day, 
I'll go to my gaming machine and shoot a few bad guys. That's yeah. what I do. <laughs> now, it's mentioned my age. I do have one request to the gaming industry that you need to have separate servers for 50 plus yeah. <laughs> people because I end up competing with the 14 to 22 crowd sometimes and you can't keep up. Yeah, they got great reflexes, right? Yes, absolutely. Now, a lot of people are talking about the metaverse these days, and there's, there's probably as much confusion about that as, as there is about data lakes, right? So what's what's your view of the metaverse? What What is it, and, and, and what do you see in it that, that you think will be most interesting to you? Well, I think if you put your gaming hat on, it's, yeah. it's a combination of how you enhance that gaming experience to some extent and create a virtual world is more holistic than the two-dimensional gaming that we do today. I mean, just giving one example, which is right. gaming. But it's it's essentially a virtual world where you can only play games, but then you, many people live their lives on Facebook. And this becomes another way of social interaction, finding out more information in a positive way. And, and so we'll see how it emerges. I, I saw the real estate prices on the metaverse are really going out <laughs> we'll see if it's another another bubble as if we need another bubble in this yeah, world right it's probably another bubble but <laughs> we'll see how that emerges but to me i think more than the metaverse the technology is fascinating yeah it's a combination of the physical the vr lenses and in the physical world and and bits and bytes on a computer how, how yeah, quickly yeah. we can simulate stuff so yeah you know it's it's really interesting i just ordered a a new macbook pro this is an m1 max and this is like a supercomputer 10 years ago but i realized i do it for uh, film editing but yeah. it's film editing and it's gameplay i mean it's like both it's two ends of the universe but that's what you need all that horsepower for and i think you, you know it's driving the, the chip business too so very interesting. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. And I think if you want to bet on the metaverse, you probably want to bet on some of the chip companies. GPUs. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And the GPUs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Well, this has been a fun conversation and a really interesting conversation. Re- really a lot of depth to it. When you talked about the, your enterprise data strategy and, and, and the role that cloud is playing in that, and that it's not just your enterprise, but you see this, your whole ecosystem being, being part of it. That's, I think that's the most expansive vision that I've actually heard described by anybody on the podcast or anywhere else. So I think I really applaud you guys for, for going so big. And I think people will be very interested to see how it goes and, and what kind of new capability it gives you and also your customers in each of those businesses. So well done. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for hosting this podcast. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour.